Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 60th episode, it's the return of James Leask. Along the way, we discuss the smell of a Canadian tire store, how authenticity in food culture is both important and a fool's game, and we talk about Emmylou Harris, who's always ready to be back because she never really left. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. James. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Hi, I'm, as Lucas said, James Leask. I am a Métis comics critic and, and commentator. I live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and I'm also a podcaster on Exiled, which is a Marvel RPG live play podcast. I play a Wendigo. I always put in that article because if I, my character ever gets killed, I'm just going to be another Wendigo if I don't immediately quit the show and rage. So is it fun being a Wendigo? It is because, like, the way it all spun out was that Multiversal Q, which is Lucare and Devin's other podcast, like their main podcast, where they talk about different, like, comic book storylines and different alternate universes and comics. They had, like, various holiday specials, and eventually they started doing, like, RPG ones. Those became, like, successful enough that that spun off into an entire other series of a team of exiles called Exile. My joke was that every time I was on Multiversal Q, I was playing a different Wendigo. (laughs) Even if I played them by and large the same. Because Wendigo's going to Wendigo. Yeah, and so eventually I think the last one of those we did, Luke wanted me to do something a, a bit different and be like, the plot needed me a bit less, like, uncontrollably monstrous. So we had one where, like, this is a Wendigo who had, like, been, like, somewhat tamed by a a version of Peter Parker. I enjoyed that enough that I kind of kept that kind of background shtick for my character on Exiled. Except it's gotten increasingly odd as we've gone along because he's become increasingly dad-like, but not, like, not fatherly. Just, like, he believes he is embodying a certain like, cultural element of dadness. He's a former pro wrestler whose entire gimmick was that he was the Wendy dad. Oh, no. And his tag team partner was Molly Hayes. <laughs> of course. Of course. And so as the last, like, few arcs of the show have gotten, like, weirder, we've been playing off that a little more, and that's been really fun because I can play this weird former pro wrestler who is openly in the pocket of like suncor and is just is like trying to teach oil sands propaganda to children at the future foundation 
that may be the most changed least thing you've ever said. Pretty much. <laughs> and then he'll spin from that and like being this weird dad to ripping a man in half like a phone book. <laughs> we should probably explain for listeners who are not as well versed in the ephemera of Marvel Comics. A Wendigo is what happens when you're in the Canadian wilderness and you get lost in the forest and you become a cannibal out of desperation, you are then mystically transformed into a Wendigo. And a Wendigo is a big, brawny, like, a white kind of bestial thing. It's like a Sasquatch with a tail. There you go. Do you want to do your interpretation of the only thing a Wendigo is normally allowed to say? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Oh, you mean the Wendigo, which is the only thing that Wendigos say usually? Wendigo just talks like this. He just talks like a dad. <laughs> a, Wendigo, a Wendigo named Gord. Yeah, no, Frank... <laughs> Frank Wendigo. Because he's actually based off one of the hosts of the Wendigo in Marvel Comics was Francois Lartigue. And so I'm playing a version of Francois Lartigue, who as he's become more like dad, at first he was Frankie, now he's just Frank. Yeah, Frank, who sounds like he would have like a drawer full of Canadian Tire money back home. Absolutely. Listen, Canadian Tire money is as good as real money, because where else are you going to shop? <laughs> All right. So I know what Canadian Tire money is. James Lee, tell the listeners what Canadian Tire money is. Canadian Tire Money is, I know there are equivalents in other companies, so some, when I started explaining it, people, some people will probably know, but so basically when you shop at Canadian Tire, which is like a, it's like a Canadian department store that's also a hardware store that's also an auto, like, service place, and it's also a garden center, but they also sell, like, homewares and, like, sports equipment. It's very, very weird. I didn't think it was weird until I had to describe it to an American for the first time, or especially the first time I had to describe it to an English person, <laughs> because none of them understood it. It's like Lowe's, except not. So Canadian Tire, every time you spend money there, you get a percentage of your purchase back as canadian tire money which now they're trying to push people towards like a little like membership card and your canadian tire money just goes back on like your account and you can redeem it whenever which is bullshit <laughs> yeah it's 100 percent bullshit i prefer the classic method where they actually give you like little like bill they're the size of dollar bills they are brightly colored and instead of having pictures of Sir Wilfred Laurier or Queen Elizabeth II or Sir John A. MacDonald, Long May He Burn in Hell. It, it has pictures of just like fake Scottish people. And it, <laughs> it, it comes in denominations and you save it up and you go back and it's at Canadian Tire, it's as good as money. Yeah, you can you can pay for your purchases that way. Like you can just like I know people who have saved up for years and like bought a barbecue, like a several hundred dollar barbecue with nothing but Canadian tire money. They walked in with a briefcase full of Canadian tire money. <laughs> oh my god, that's so baller. That's the most strictly Canadian baller thing in the world. Just like like that Samsonite briefcase with the fake leather outside and the gold latches and you just go click click. I think you'll find this is in order, gentlemen. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I've only ever paid for like one thing in Canadian Tire money, and it, and it was like it, What's that? it was like I was buying like a tool for ten dollars or something. <laughs> so even that felt really, really good. See, I used to in again talking about Fredericton New Brunswick, which we did a lot in the pre-show. I used to steal it out of the kitchen drawer and use it to go and buy snacks because, of course, because it's also a department store, it would have like chocolate and chips and stuff at the front register. And my school. Fredericton High School was directly across from a shopping center that had a Canadian tire on the end of it. And so it was just like free money. So I would go over in my lunch break and just like, you know, buy Pringles or chocolate bars or whatever with Canadian tire money, which wasn't, mm -hmm. I, I suppose, wasn't technically stealing because I was paying for it. I mean, it's as good as real money. So that was technically stealing. God damn it. Statute of limitations, though. I've been wearing a wire this whole time. <laughs>
<laughs> Damn, the Mounties are after me. I was say they start to do this weird thing in well, Canadian Tire's doing this weird thing where they actually like they're building Canadian new Canadian tires that actually feel modern and new, and I don't care for it. No. Because Canadian tires, forever, when they were built, they always felt like a decade old already. Mm-hmm. They always had that smell of, like, bike oil and, like, tires <laughs> and, like, cleaning, and cleaning solution. They, there's a very unique Canadian tire smell. Now they're building ones that are, like, multi-level with, like, touchscreens where you can design your own backyard patio. And, like, little things where you can, like, you can buy a hockey stick and, like, practice with it. Weird. It's so weird and it's modern. I don't care for it because, in my mind, every single Canadian tire should perpetually be in 1988. Yeah, and it should have those shitty tiles on the floor that you normally only find in hallways outside of high school gyms. They built a new one in in my end of town when I was a kid. They closed the one at West Edmonton Mall and they built a big new one and i went there the day they opened and the tiles still felt old and that's how i knew it was a canadian tire and here's the thing canadian tires are so ubiquitous in canada that it took me until i was maybe 14 to realize that the tire in the name for canadian tire actually referred to tires on a car because we had never taken our car there we'd only ever gone there to buy like hardware or hockey equipment or whatever and it was just oh canadian tire oh it's because they sell tires I finally bought tires there last year. Oh, Let no me way. tell you. You closed the loop. I got, I, I got a great deal. Good tires, great deal, great service. Shop a Canadian tire. <laughs> hey, if anyone was wondering if our last episode was the most Canadian thing when we talked about the Canadian currency, that has been pipped, my friends. Talking about Canada's real currency <laughs> made this episode even more Canadian. Oh, I'm so happy right now. You don't even know. But I will turn to something else that is Canadian, because normally when I come into these return episodes, I kind of have a, a question or two prepped. And here's a question for you, Mr. James Leask. For sure. Tell me about prairie Chinese food. For a long time, I didn't think of it as prairie Chinese food. I thought of it as Chinese food. And of course, in between that, I learned of like Chinese food in North America is often very different because it's been adapted for slightly different ingredients and palates. So what I find very interesting with that is that the concept of authenticity is somewhat skewed because at this point, there are genuine traditions of Chinese people making Chinese food. It's just different Chinese food than in different regions back in China. But what's interesting is that, and I only found this out really when I was in my teens, is that Chinese food on the prairies in Canada is different from Chinese food in a lot of other places, especially in the US. I wondered about that because I'd watch a lot of, say, American TV, and they'd always be talking about like dishes that we could not get here, like mushu pork or Kung Pao chicken. Those didn't really exist. Now there's one or two places that will have them, but those are weird like pan-Asian noodle places that all have wok in the name. When I I think of prairie Chinese food, I think of ginger beef, which is a very, apparently a very specific like prairie thing. It was invented in Calgary, Alberta by Chinese immigrants. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because Alberta is such like a, a massive beef producing province compared to other meats 
And so Chinese American food or other Chinese Canadian food that wasn't necessarily as heavy on the beef kind of got switched for the prairies where beef is the main protein. I remember learning that and finding that out to be really, really cool. Uh, the Royal Alberta Museum here a couple of years ago actually did like a big summer long exhibition on prairie Chinese food. I believe there was a documentary produced to go along with it. And I forget what it's called. It aired on CBC News World in Canada really cool. I'm glad that it's something that's getting attention now. I'm I'm not sure we're going to have like a ginger beef heritage moment or anything, but soon. You never know. No, 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 because people in Ontario don't know what it is. So (laughs) there'll never be a heritage minute on something that Ontario doesn't understand. (laughs) That's the real regional beef. (laughs) I see what you did there. That was terrible. You're a monster. What's he going to (laughs) do? All right, well, that finished (laughs) shorter than I expected. So I will go on to my next James Least Appropriate Topic. Mm-hmm. James, how many Emmy Lou Harris records do you own? Do you want with doubles or without? Do both. Nine or 11 with doubles. <laughs> and that doesn't include the other Emmy Lou Harris music and stuff I bought on iTunes. That's strictly speaking just the vinyl I have. And mm-hmm. at my parents' house, I have like, well, I actually have a bunch of CDs of like some of her more recent albums. That I just haven't brought them over. I think that I believe they're technically my parents. I'm, just, I'm the one that listens to them. So what's your fascination with America's Songbird? A lot of it started, I mean, because there was always a little bit of it in the house, uh, just because there was so much. There were so many Emmylou Harris albums in my parents' house that odds are at some point it was going to be played just by nothing more than random chance. Though most of the time it was Nielsen's The Point, still a classic album. But a big part of it is when I was in university and I started getting into indie rock and independent music, but I also started getting into alt-country, which inevitably led me to Ryan Adams. And Ryan Adams' first solo album, Heartbreaker, which featured a very, very classic Emmylou Harris duet, Oh My Sweet Carolina. And then from there, like, she also did some stuff with Connor Oberst on I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning, one of his two. That double album he released in, I think, 2006. And so, like, as an adult, I really got back into Emmylou Harris through the collaborations she was doing with younger roots or country artists and also like that's around the same time i got into alice for example allison krauss or nickel creek i mean my fascination with america's songbird and Lou harris is just that she has an absolutely wonderful unique voice and she's been around for so long like she is a living bit of country history at this point both by herself her collaborations with Graham Parsons, Rest in Peace, Brothers Eat at the Crossroads, and then her later duets with many other people. So, like, when I think of a lot of, like, country music, I think of, like, Emily Harris, and I think of Dolly Parton, and those are the big people in my mind. Speaking of Dolly Parton, in your collection, do you have Trio somewhere in there? We used to. When I was in, I think, my first year university or second year, there, was, like, there were massive torrential rains, Mm-hmm. And my family lives near the big, big mall, West Edmonton Mall. Basically, they were supposed to, when the mall was built, build their own independent sewer systems. They did not. <laughs> and so when the mall flooded during those big torrential rains, the surrounding neighborhoods flooded. And so, like, my family's home was, like, the basement was full of, like, a foot and a half of shit. Oof. And the sad thing is that that's where most of the vinyl was. The old Who albums, the old Leo Kotke albums, like, most of that stuff was all gone. A lot of the stuff that was left was either the things... I'd moved upstairs because I was listening to it. The Beatles albums, Emmylou Harris, stuff like that. Or the stuff that was just there because it was forgotten. So the Rod Stewart albums I gave away. Or like the weird old like novelty country Christmas albums. Stuff <laughs> like that. Oh, you mean 
<laughs> Kenny and Dolly Christmas album went the way the wayside. Oh God, I wish. Hey, listen, uh, if it was as good as that one, I would have been golden. This was just these were long forgotten like artists in the not particularly popular, profitable era of country music. Mm-hmm. And so there was not particularly good music. I ended up like my parents were getting rid of all the rest of their vinyl. I ended up taking all of it and finally cleaned through it like last spring, like spring 2016 and got rid of basically everything except the things I wanted. Mm-hmm. And of course, what I wanted were those 11 Emily Harris albums. For good reason. And coming back to Trio for a minute, I managed to find this guy. I think it was mentioned through like Pop Rocket in passing. And I went... Okay, yeah, I hear about, like, I love Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton's cool. And I love, love, love Emily, Emily Lou Harris. And it's like, oh, by the way, Dolly Parton, Linda Ronstadt, and Emily Lou Harris got together and just made a country album. And I am there day one. Like, I am in line yeah. waiting with a hat that says, go Dolly. Did you get the complete trio collection? No, no, I, I only got it to digitally because I am in the ass end of the world. Yeah. But it's one of those things, like, you listen through, and I remember, like, sticking on one. Like, I put it on shuffle kind of in my spotify on the way to work which is a bad thing don't listen to sad country music before you go to work you will have a shitty day i got to i've had enough and i listened to that song like six times in a row because that is a killer fucking song yeah that's a fucking kate mcgarrickle jam i was just about to say yeah which was written by fucking canadian legend kate mcgarrickle of the mcgarrickles mother of rufus and martha wainwright oh so good trios is a great album i wish i still had it that cover is fucking something else, let me tell you. <laughs> That's a 1987-ass album cover. <laughs> Where country was at its boofiest. Bless all three of them, though. Linda Ronstadt was another one where we had a ton of her albums, mm-hmm. and those were ones that were damaged in the flood, so I, I, I wish I still had them. Yeah, see, we had Linda Ronstadt, we had Crystal Gale, and I think Crystal Gale was my mom's hero because my mom did not cut her hair after the age of 21. And so Crystal Gale having this like floor length hair, which probably caused her neck problems, was like a, a hero thing for my mom. Nice. Funny because you mentioned Ryan Adams and Connor Oberst and stuff bringing up Emmylou Harris because it's something it's like I always find it interesting to track these like secondary renaissances of older artists because certain people mm-hmm. who assumed they were the only ones listening to that person, who the only ones who really treasured that person, will mention it, and then everyone else will go, oh, yeah, of course, Emily Harris is a treasure. Emily Harris is interesting because I don't think she gets a lot of like ongoing public honorifics and, and, and honors, but as soon as you mention her, people are like, of, of course, of course. And I, I think her, in a similar way to Lucinda Williams, is like, because they're still making music, it's mm-hmm. a little harder to canonize them, you know, because they're still around. What do you think? Yeah, that's partially true. But I mean, at the same time, like, Emilu, like, like she's still making great stuff with none such, though. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, I, I think it's partially that, but I think it's also just partially that a lot of them weren't remembered as the big icons. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy over time for that more used to ebb and flow than it, say, is for Patsy Cline, too. Or Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn and Patsy Cline and Dolly are always going to be like the one, two, three of women's country music. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then you get Emmy Lou and to some weird degree, Linda Ronstadt mm-hmm. and, and women like that who are always going to come and go. But as soon, they're, always, they're always ready to be back because they never really left. Speaking of always wanting to be back, what's your opinion on Van Leer Rose? The Loretta Lynn album that Jack White produced? I wasn't as wild about it as I wanted to be. I mean, part of that's also that I have a very complicated relationship with the music of Jack White. I think he's mellowed a lot in the last few years, and he's a lot easier to like. 
doesn't punch people as much anymore. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The Rose was made right when he couldn't stop cold cocking Jason Stolzheimer. <laughs> or Dan Auerbach, or a list of others. Yeah, and, and so even though I always liked Jack White's music, it was hard for me to really get behind him. And I don't know, something about... It always felt, for some reason, just the tone of Van Leer Rose, just like the PR around it made me feel weird. And I don't know why. It just felt like people were... It felt like people were like patronizing Loretta Lynn a lot. Ooh, okay. I can see that. And I don't know why. Like, again, that could, that could just be me out of nowhere. But it just that and my complicated relationship at the time with Jack White as a person. And I don't mean like my personal relationship with him. <laughs> I, the closest I've ever gotten to him was at a White Stripes concert where, which was the worst concert I've ever been to. Not because of them. Not because of them. The band was great. The venue was very bad. And they did not control people who were basically starting like a trample. Oh boy. And so I spent most of the show like trying to hold up like a dad and his daughter and like keep my glasses on and stuff like that because people at the back wanted to like push up to the front. Mm, no good. That's as close as I, I got to Jack White. My qualms with Jack White in that period are not based on something he said to me. <laughs> I thought that story for a second was going to end with, and then Jack White punched me. He was punching a lot of people in between 2004 and 2008. Like, would that really have struck you that weird if it had happened? <laughs> I think he's calmed down a lot in recent years. He's become a lot, a lot more of like an advocate for the production styles he believes in. Yeah, a lot of good stuff has been coming out of Third Man Records. I like Third Man a lot, and I think like in the interviews I've seen with Jack White, he seems a, lot, a bit less brash than he used to be. In a way, where like you know he's not punching people constantly anymore. <laughs> One fun thing that I have is I have the Conan O'Brien LP. Oh, yeah. I saw that at a record store once, and I was like, I don't know if I want to buy it. Is it good? It is good. So there's two things that they produced, he produced with Third Man. One of them is, like, the album that's all about, like, basically a stop of his, like, legally prohibited from being on television tour, <laughs> which I attended the actual the show in Edmonton. It was pretty fun. But the other one is it's a seven inch and one half is an interview and that's the B side. The A side is him doing like a Mel Brooks-esque comedy routine as a Frankenstein-esque mad doctor who's created a monster and is it's Conan improving mm -hmm. about this like scatterbrain mad scientist who is like naming his monster Jeff. <laughs> it's good fun. I'll tell you though the weird the one thing like because I've I've liked Conan for a long time especially enough that I I paid money to see him in concert in town but the person that's actually really grown in my esteem in the last few years is Andy Richter really yeah like and I mean I always liked Andy Richter's comedy and I liked his television stuff and I always enjoyed seeing him on other shows but oddly enough his Twitter has really made me even more of a fan of his because he is. Very, very progressive. He is constantly sharing and backing up the viewpoints of trans people, women of color. And he's given interviews where he talks about how he understands the power dynamic of being a famous person on Twitter and how it's inappropriate for him to just really quote tweet a lot of people because that could result in his fans being really shitty to someone, even if that person is someone that Andy doesn't like. And so the idea that like Andy Richter is really progressive and has this nuanced view of using his own celebrity and is really hesitant to really capitalize on it in bad ways made me really appreciate him more in addition to the fact that i always liked him as the sidekick yeah and really that kind of nuance to how to use twitter is something that a lot of 
Twitter celebrities could actually benefit from. It happens a lot where people, because the thing is a lot of Twitter users understand the power dynamic of a famous person quote tweeting. And they'll say that to the famous person or the somewhat famous person or the comic book writer. That person might not totally, they might not have that ex that knowledge. And so something gets lost in translation and so there then there's some people trying to explain that there's other people being dicks and there's often that first person that celebrity it's a quasi celebrity whomever ending up being more of a dick whether or not they intended to be in the first place it's very hard to have a teachable moment in those situations <laughs> sorry momentarily having a stretch no worries i'm gonna take a sip of president's choice cane sugar cola you should do that <laughs> the only cola for me <laughs> that's not true we're a coca-cola household Ah. My fiance is a is a Coca Cola person. I am a Diet Coke person. <laughs> See, we were always a Pepsi household. My dad would always live on uh, <laughs> on Pepsi and export a blue cigarettes. Yet, seeming I've kind of gravitated to being a Coke Zero person because inherited from my dad, I had a terrible cola addiction coming into university. That awful kind of two liters plus a day, multiple, multiple cans throughout the day. The kind of thing where you'd open one and then find out, oh wait, it's empty. I should open another one. Yeah. I think I was really lucky that my parents were pretty good at allowing like one can of pop. And we, and we were always generally a, a diet pop household. Mm -hmm. Partially because my parents said, what I would say like the stuff with sugar was like too sugary for them and they could like feel it on their teeth mm -hmm. and as a teen i never understood that and then i went to have a coke at one point in like my 20s and i went oh i, <laughs> I see what they mean and so like i only ever had like it was like one coke a day on a weekday like two on the weekend mm -hmm. that was allowed and i wouldn't even always have that even now like i don't drink pop before noon I generally have one a day, maybe two sometimes. Unless I'm at, like, I'm out at a restaurant, in which case I will just have as many bottomless Diet Cokes as they can give me. <laughs> I like Diet Coke, actually, not just because of lack of sugar, but because I like food a lot. I like cooking, and I like playing with flavors. And, I, and so I really like that Diet Coke isn't too sweet, that it's very crisp, it's mildly astringent, and so it's mostly just a sense of effervescence. It like kind of cleans the palate really well. Mm -hmm. And so I really like having that with food because I can drink a lot of it and it doesn't affect how I'm enjoying the food. Yeah, yeah. But also just have a sparkling water too. Yeah, I've got, I've, so I think like my sparkling water addiction has kind of flown out of that. I like having something fizzy, but also, yeah, you're right. I'm at the age where a soft drink at a certain time is going to leave your teeth feeling fuzzy and it's going to leave you feeling kind of a little bit shaky and you don't know why, which may be the most <laughs> weak-ass thing I've ever said. But here's the thing. If you change your pattern and go to like Coke Zero or Diet Coke, and then every once in a while you have a full-strength one, it's like walking into a swinging barn door. Like it just, it catches you completely off guard. Like I'll be out somewhere and someone will be like, oh, do you want to drink? I'm like, oh no, I'll just have like a coke or something and they'll get it for me and i'll take a sip of that like fountain coke and it's just like oh, easy tiger you know <laughs> oh, the fountain coke is the best though like oh it's so good i like really crisp effervescent or mildly astringent beverages so like i really like tonic water yeah tonic water took a while to grow on me because again it's one of those things where it's bitter yeah. and you have to grow into loving bitter food yeah and it's like the first time you have a gin and tonic you think is this some sort of cosmic joke do you hate me in some way have i offended you that you would bring me this thing and then after a while like i've gotten to the point where after having gin and tonics as kind of like my basic all right i'm going to have a drink at home i will make a gin and tonic because especially if you get the little bottles of tonic like the little glass ones as opposed to mm -hmm. like a big plastic bottle it's always fresh and it's always super fizzy. It's a really nice thing. And there's a company in Australia called Cappy Tonic that does really nice tonic. For a while, I was like, oh, well, you know, I don't have any gin in the house. I'll just make a vodka tonic. And so 
I did that. And I'm like, maybe I just like tonic now. And so, yeah, a glass of tonic water with a bit of lemon is a really nice thing. I like gin and tonic more than vodka tonic Mm -hmm. just because I think tonic water brings out the aromatics of – or something something effervescent brings out the aromatic aspects of gin. Yeah, and it does. It does depend on the gin. It's one of those. So, so, like the juniper, the cucumber. Yeah, totally. I think it works best with gin because it enhances that. The perfect combination, I think. I had it at a bar here. Was you have Hendrix gin with a nice tonic, like a Cappy tonic, with like slices of cucumber, a bit of lemon, and like some rosemary, just like dropped in. It's real good. That's also real good with a bit of a shrub. Oh yes. See, I know what shrub is because I've talked to Chris Sims. <laughs> I've started making a little bit of shrubs. And I've got a strawberry one in the fridge right now that's getting nice and mellow. That with some gin and some tonic is really, really nice. But I mean, I, I'll have like a drink a month, so it's not like I'm powering through that. That's usually a tonic <laughs> water. Yeah. That's usually like a, well, a soda stream thing. Oh, by the way, this whole time after we started talking about Third Man Records, I have been scrolling like crazy, and I finally found the artist I wanted to mention, which is Margot Price. God damn it. Margot Price is pretty fucking great. Uh, Hurtin' on the Bottle is such a fun song. It is. Ugh. That entire album is really, really strong. Do you watch Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown? No, I don't. And it, it's one of those things where it's like, I know that all the jokes about Anthony Bourdain. I don't think I've ever seen any of his stuff. I think Parts Unknown is the best he's he's ever been. Partially because, like, by the time it started, like, he was a dad and he was, like, really calming down. So he's a lot less brash than he used to be. Is this episode just going to be called, like, Less Brash Than You Used To Be? <laughs> Maybe. I'm a little less brash than I used to be. Mm -hmm. But no, like, uh, when you're younger, like, the appeal of Anthony Bourdain is, like, he's this hard-drinking culinary bad boy who says the shit that no one else will. And then, like, at some point, like, it happens with any person like that. You grow up, and if they don't, you often leave them behind. And the good thing is that Anthony Bourdain is really, really grown up. He's a really strong interviewer. He reads conversations really well. And so Parts Unknown, which is basically no reservations, his old show, except the focus on food is a bit more skewed to like culture and politics. Food is still a big part of it, and food will always be present. But instead of talking about how the food is made as much, it'll be food is present while they talk about parts of the culture, parts of the history of wherever he's been. And so it's really cool to get the views of certain places or peoples you know, that you get with that show. Like, he did, like, uh, I forget which American city this last year. It might have been, I think it was Houston. There wasn't a white guest or inter- or interviewee on the show the entire episode because the point of the episode was him focusing on the black and Vietnamese community there and how they've impacted the business and the culture and the food. Oh, cool. He's really moved towards telling stories that aren't otherwise heard. It reminds me a lot of, he used to do it very occasionally with No Reservations. There's an episode of No Reservations where it was about Hokkaido. And a big focus of the episode in the center of it was on the Ainu people, who are the indigenous people of Japan. Yeah, yeah. Who have been historically awfully treated, just like so many indigenous peoples. And they're basically left out of almost any cultural discussion and historical discussion of Japan, especially by people outside of Japan who don't know about them. And so I really liked that episode because it was this long-form view on a people who were very often excluded from their own history. He was really letting them speak. That's a skill that he has honed even more with Parts Unknown. And so he did an episode on Nashville either this year or the previous season 
where Margot Price was a big person in there. And he was talking about people coming up in the music scene that aren't as, you know, aren't what you typically think of as being Nashville musicians. I mean, Jack White was a big part of that episode. Kills were a big part of that episode. And it's funny because the minute you started saying, oh, Anthony Bourdain goes and, you know, talks to people and non-white guests, I kind of cringe just slightly because there has been kind of an awful vogue of white celebrity chefs going to other countries and be like, this is my version of that thing. And it's like, ah, can you not? But this actually sounds like, yeah. It's always really complicated, too, because The Sportful has Dan Pashman, who hosts it, did a really cool, I think a week-long series last year called Other People's Food, where he talked a lot about people who aren't of a culture speaking about it, adapting its food and what that means. It's complicated because on one hand, food is an exchange. The idea of authenticity, to bring us back around to I was just prairie to Chinese food, <laughs> is, is very difficult to say. And there are non-white like cooks or chefs, like say Kenji Lopez-Alt of Serious Eats, his own book, The Food Lab. And now I think he's got a new restaurant opening in the Bay Area, either this year or next year, called Worstall. And to him borrowing is often a good thing but he will even talk about how it can go bad but he talks about focusing on authenticity is a fool's game because what is there's so many versions of what's authentic and you don't want to talk over a certain person's genuine authenticity and i think that was really cool there's an australian chef named kylie kwong who talks about again this idea of australian chinese food and the food that has developed in australia along coastal regions versus in remote areas and yeah, it's again, it's that stuff where it's like what you get here is not what you get anywhere else because of that concept of, like you said, of borrowing yeah. and that adaptation. And I think that's really cool. Like this idea where like you can go back to a source, you can go back as far as you can and you get that authenticity. But then there's also this myriad of difference. And I'm, I'm going to stretch this example, so I apologize. No worries. When I try to explain to people why I sound the way I do, when someone says, because I have an accent that I accept is this mongrel thing that has grown out of my childhood moving around Canada and starting in Vancouver and then learning to talk in New Brunswick and then moving to French Canada and hanging out with my cousins there and then spending time in high school back in Vancouver and then back in New Brunswick and then coming to Australia and working in the call center industry for 10 years Yeah, where I had to struggle to be understood. So all that kind of melange has come out to my accent now and people here hear me and they say, oh, you sound Canadian. And Canadians hear me and they go, oh, you sound like you're from somewhere else. You definitely, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because even though there's so many different accents in Canada, I would not necessarily immediately place your accent as Canadian. But it's it reaches me as partially Canadian but with some, with other things. That's always very cool. Thank you. I occasionally like get people in Australia going, are you Irish? And I'm like, are you drunk? And I'm like, no, I don't sound Irish at all. But it's like what I realized, it's the softening of the R sound at the end of words, which is often associated with Irish speech that is from Eastern Canada. Which has, which is heavily Celtic influenced. Exactly. But then every once in a while, I will have words like the way I say Australia, which is like an Australian would. And I'll hear my dad go, oh, how are things in Australia? And I'm just like, that, can, can you not? The kind of end point of this is my ex's late father, rest in peace. He was a lovely man who took his own life. His accent, it may be the prototypical story of accents that I tell whenever I can, because he was born in the south of Germany and was taught English by a Scottish person and then went to America and worked in America for 10 years and then came back to Germany, packed up his family and moved to Australia in the 70s to a very, very working class area of Australia. 
And so when I met him in 2003, his accent was the most unique thing I have ever heard. <laughs> That's amazing. It's not, don't get wrong, it sounds like a nightmare, but a beautiful nightmare. <laughs> it's one of those things where I heard it and I turned to my ex at the time and I went, oh, so this is what an Australian accent sounds like. And she went, no, you moron. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> but yeah, so back with the idea of authenticity and of food and white chefs coming into places and doing those things. It is complicated, I think, because it's so easy to do it wrong and to be gross about it and to be so appropriating about it. But then you get odd places like Andy Ricker of Pak Pak. He lives a lot of the year in Thailand. He speaks Thai. He researches a lot there. And even he'll talk about his Thai food is different from, even though he's trying to make things as much as he is taught as possible, mm -hmm. he talks about how his stuff is not purely Thai food. Or Rick Bayless of PBS and many fantastic restaurants in Chicago. He's talked about how one reason why his food doesn't, he doesn't experiment as much with his food is because he doesn't want to experiment in a way that would have it be, veer, that would veer into appropriation. And so that's more of the space for him of that experimentation is to be done by Mexican cooks and Mexican chefs. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, he'll take his staff on it. Every year they go on an extended trip to different parts of Mexico so that his staff can be as knowledgeable about what they're doing back at the restaurant as possible. To some people, you know, some people will discuss Rick Bayless and those actions in very positive terms. Other people will be less forgiving. And I don't know where I fall on that because it's so complicated. It's extremely complicated, yeah. And I think about my reaction when the idea of what is indigenous food is brought up in Canada because with the increase in idea of locavorism and just eating as organically and as locally as possible, having relationships with the growers, people have started talking about things that are indigenous foods, but the idea of what is indigenous food is very different than say what I might say the indigenous food, what I think of it as being. But there's also the fact that our foodways were forcibly taken from us and were very actively colonized. And so you could ask, does indigenous food include wheat flour? I might say it does because I'm a Métis person and I am a meeting point of different cultures. It is harder for me to decolonialize that part of my diet. Whereas for other people, it might very easily be grains like that are not considered indigenous. That discussion is largely left off entirely from what ends up on a menu at a restaurant, which is basically venison and bannock. And listen, I love bannock. I love venison. I'm going to cook venison on Monday. But it's weird seeing the limited idea of what is indigeneity in food to other people. That's what I want to say. If folks are ever in Edmonton, I would do recommend that they check out Sage at River Creek Casino. Uh, there is a very cool Cree chef there by the name of Shane Chartrand, who does a lot of genuinely really cool progressive indigenous cuisine. He's coming out with, I believe, a book called Marrow soon, and I am so, so excited for it. He's a good dude, does a lot with the community, and his food is really provocative about what is indigenous. Same thing with Sean Sherman in Minnesota. Cool, and I think that's a nice place to end it on that positive note. So, James, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? The prime place people can find me online is on Twitter, where all where most of my shit posts live, and that is at Leask, L-E-A-S-K. They can also find me every Saturday on the Exiled Podcast. So on Twitter, that's at Exiled Podcast, and I think the website is just ExiledPodcast.com. You can also just look it up in iTunes or whatever other ways people look up podcasts are i just look it up in itunes so i don't know what other things are they're trying to do the thing where the insistent terminology is apple podcasts and it's just weird yeah whatever <laughs> itunes <laughs>
Yeah. Look it up in iTunes, people. So Exiled is, as I explained a little bit earlier, it is a Marvel RPG live play podcast where we all are a team of exiles who have been plucked from our universes and are trying to get to our various homes, unless we're not. Who knows? (laughs) It's a lot of fun. And people can also find my prose forward for the Moonshot Volume 2. Moonshot is an indigenous comics anthology. It's produced by Alternative History Comics. It's edited by Hope Nicholson, who of a great many wonderful projects, you can find her cool, cool things online. She's got like a gothic romance comic Kickstarter right now. I'm so excited for that. It looks dope. Yeah. Also, she's real cool. You should follow her. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hope's great. Being a part of Moonshot was really, really cool. I just did the foreword. Michael Shiache did the introduction. And there are so many fantastic indigenous stories inside it. It's really remarkable. It's, it's always on my desk. All right, James. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's always a pleasure to fall down the Canadian rabbit hole. And I think we kind of ended up somewhere cool this time. Me too. Thank you very much for having me again. And congratulations to you and your partner on the birth and your healthy, healthy boy. I wish nothing but the best for all three of you. Oh, thanks. Thank you very much to James Leask for his time. Now, after all of our conversations about tonic and things that go with tonic, I found myself inspired this weekend by a drink I had with lunch at Caffeine in Balmain. It was a mixture of cold drip coffee and tonic water with a huge chunk of lemon dropped into the top of it. And on a really hot Australian summer day, it was just the perfect thing to go with my food. So I've used that as my inspiration for this drink, which I've called the Night Flyer. In a beaker with several large ice cubes, combine one and a half ounces of botanical gin and either three ounces of cold drip coffee or one and a half ounces of cold drip coffee liqueur. And when I say this, I mean something like Mr. Black or Ely. Don't use Kahlua, don't use Tia Maria. It really won't work. If in doubt, get some cold pour over coffee and use that instead. Stir to combine and strain into an old fashioned glass. Top up with three ounces of your favorite tonic water and a squeezed lemon wedge. Fly away with your troubles and drop them somewhere. And if you're only dreaming, I don't really care. Enjoy. is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. 
New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. Fair warning, I am almost completely booked out through the end of 2017. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You could be giving out money, like money's candy, and it's Halloween. And hey, it is Halloween. At least it is when I'm recording it. Patrons get physical mail, cursive tweets, and I would really, just really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head to iTunes or Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps with discoverability and gets other people listening to the show. If you like, you can also write a review, and I'll read them out on the show. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. If you go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word, you'll find a Spotify playlist with music going all the way back to episode one. That's more than ten hours of music, including this song. It's Emmy Lou by First Aid Kit, yet another alumnus of Third Man Records. This is another episode where I had a great idea of what I was going to do, and then in editing back the episode, I just had to completely change it and make it almost all Emmy Lou Harris songs. For anyone wondering, I was also going to include Birmingham by Shovels and Rope, and of course Hurtin' on the Bottle by Margot Price. They're both excellent songs, go and listen to them. Next week is an episode I'm very excited for, I'm going to be talking to Randall Trang comic book artist, writer, stuntman, and actor about Drunken Master. Join me, won't you? I wish nothing but the best for all three of you. Oh, thanks. I'm just saying, he was wearing a Batman once yesterday. So. Nice. <laughs> have you gotten a man on that? Have you gotten a man on those Chicago Cubs yet, though? Not yet. You got it, baby. <laughs> Although, again, his mother's family is baseball mad, but their team's the Angels. So, no, no, <laughs> no. I am, I am putting my foot down here. Do not let them be a fan of the the Angels. Angels. <laughs> oh, I, my next trip to Japan, I'm gonna get him a <laughs> a Hiroshima carp little jersey because I just want him to be able to say go the carps oh they're fantastic if you, ever, if you ever want to get some of their cool older stuff mm-hmm. you can go to Ebbets Field Flannels oh, I yeah. forget what their website is I'm going to be making an order soon-ish and it's for one of their old caps from like the 60s oh cool it's really cool they also have old jerseys and stuff but the caps are really really interesting and cool they also have a whole bunch for other like Negro League teams and like other like long defunct baseball teams in North America, it's a it's a pretty cool website. They're not paying me to say that. I just think they're cool. <laughs> and see, this happened again. We were saying our goodbyes, and we got caught up in the topic. Damn it, James. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll talk to you later, buddy. All right, bye.